If you have your Bibles, please take them now and turn with me to Psalm 119. Today we are beginning in verse 89, and we'll read that section that begins with verse 89, those eight verses. Um, the last time we were in Psalm 119, we looked at the psalm, the psalmist in the depths of his despair because of the affliction that has come upon him. And that affliction has come upon him in the context of the promise of God given to us in verses 1 and 2, that blessed are those who find their delight, their hope in the word, the promises of God. And so with that in mind, we begin reading in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. This is God's word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Let us pray. To the God and Father above, you have revealed yourself to us in your world and in your word. We have taken some time today to come apart from that world, to sit, to worship you, and to learn of you from your word. Honor us by opening our eyes and our ears so that we might see your glory and the glory of your salvation in these eight verses. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Shipping companies, both public and private, are in the promise-making and promise-keeping business. You go to the counter of your local shipping provider, you You hand them the package that you want shipped from point A to point B. You pay them some money and then you let go of your package, giving them the shipment because they have promised to deliver it on your behalf in exchange for the money that you have given. Now, sometimes these companies that promise to make a shipment for us may take a little bit longer than we had expected as they have possession of our package. And so our faith that they are going to follow through on their promise may begin to falter, may begin to wane. We seek to assure ourselves by remembering uh, past shipments that have been given to these same companies and have been delivered in a timely manner. You may also seek to assure yourselves that they will keep their promises by remembering the values that, that the company is founded upon and their commitment to those values. Whenever you or I have reason to doubt promises that have been made to us, we should do the work to assure ourselves that the one who made the promise is hopefully trustworthy. And our psalmist is in that situation. As I mentioned a moment ago, he opened the psalm with two verses of promised blessing and happiness that will come to those who are faithful to God, to living out the commands and promises of God's word. And then 
He introduces us to the affliction that comes to those who seek to be faithful to God's word, and he leaves us in the depths of despair in the previous section. If God has promised blessing and happiness in return for a commitment of loyalty to his word and to his promises, how do we keep faith in those promises in the midst of a life that many times is anything except blessed or happy? In this section of Psalm 119, the psalmist pulls back and looks beyond his situation, finding assurances that God will keep his promises to bring blessing and happiness. The psalmist today, we will see, finds assurance in God's unchanging nature. And our psalmist finds assurance in God's redemption. First, the psalmist finds assurance in God's unchanging nature. Verse 96 is one that has given translators problem throughout the years. If you look at different translations, you'll see that this is translated actually in several different ways. And the sense that we get in the first line that the NIV has for us here, it says, to all perfection, I see a limit. The sense is actually a a little bit of a joke that the psalmist is giving us here, where he actually says, to the endless... I see an end. The best sense that we can get from this as we compare it to the second half of the verse and the rest of the section is that the psalmist is saying that there are things out there that claim to be an end, that claim to be endless, but I have seen an end to those things. How many empires have have raised up and fallen throughout the history of humanity? We we would probably be hard-pressed to count the number of empires that have raised and fallen throughout history. What is one thing, one of many probably, but what is one thing that each of these empires had in common? They all figured that they were the last empire because nothing was going to happen to them to make them fall. This empire will never come to an end, whether it was Rome or Greece or Germany or the Sumerian Empire from back in antiquity, every empire, every democracy, every totalitarian government, even every republic has the sense that this is the last government to ever exist on earth because it will never end. Brothers and sisters, depending upon how long God chooses to tarry before Jesus returns, all empires, all governments, All democracies, all republics will end. There is an end to human endlessness. The truth does not only apply to governments, but it applies to the things of this world that you and I build. You and I may have investments or businesses or collections that we think are going to bring security and enjoyment for generations upon generations. We put our hope in sports teams. We put our hope in work. We put our hope in relationships, thinking that they are the be-all, end-all to life. And they will provide the endless security that we hope for. But the truth is that almost all things that you and I believe to be endless will ultimately come to an end. And that's what the psalmist is saying there in the first half of verse 96. He says, to all perfection, to all endlessness, 
to all things that we think will provide security and meaning and hope in this world that we think are forever things. There is an end to them. And the psalmist contrasts them in the second half of verse 96 with the commands of God that he says are boundless. The commands of God are not bound by time. The commands of God are not bound by space. The commands of God are not bound by the thought processes and beliefs of any particular culture out there. There is no limit to the life and the application of God's commands to the people of this world. Yes, some of them have found fulfillment in Christ, so their application is different to us today than they were to the Israelites of Moses and of David's time. But they are still in effect for the people of God. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, where he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, which Peter quoted in our passage earlier today. He says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. People come and go. Governments come and go. Empires come and go. Collections, investments, businesses, relationships come and go. But the word of God stands forever. Just as God's word was sufficient for the original audience, God's word is sufficient as a teacher of the people of God today. And it will continue to be a sufficient teacher for the people of God. Until Jesus returns, whether that's tomorrow, another 2000 or even 200,000 years from now, God's word will always be sufficient. It is boundless. And not only does he tell us that it's boundless, but he tells us why it's boundless. He gives us three reasons. The first Reason that we're going to look at is found in verse 91 of today's psalm. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. What is the favorite song of fairly associate Reformed Presbyterian Church? It's 26 in the back, is it not? Anybody know what psalm that is based on? Psalm 148. And you know what God says in Psalm 148? He calls all of creation to praise him. He calls the heavens to praise him. He calls the angels, the heavenly host, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waters above the skies, the waters on the earth. He calls the great sea creatures, the land creatures. He calls lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds, mountains and hills, fruit trees, all cedars, wild animals, and all cattle, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations, princes, rulers, young men and maiden, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. What on earth praises the Lord? What on earth serves the Lord? 
absolutely everything. Everything that has been created, everything that is, every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle, every large body in the heaven serves the Lord. And because of this, the psalmist reminds us that God's word stands forever because all things serve him. Even those who think they have turned their back upon God serve God. Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is preaching to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, according to God's foreknowledge, Jesus was delivered up to you to be crucified. Even those sinful acts that we do in ultimate rebellion against God serve his glory, serve his majesty. And because of those things, we know that his word stands forever. The second reason, the second reason we know that his word, his law stands forever is in verse 90. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures Earlier this week, we we saw a glorious rainbow in the morning. It is so rare to see a rainbow in the morning, and especially as bright as that rainbow was all over the county, all over the area. We see the God hangs his rainbow in the sky and we think of his promise to Noah. Where he said, I will never again destroy the earth by flood. We fast forward to the prophet Jeremiah as as the Babylonians were threatening the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of David's kingly line, a line that God promised would stand forever. God speaks through Jeremiah and tells the Israelites, do you have doubt that there will be a king on David's throne? Look to the sun. As long as the sun raises in the morning and sets in the evening, I will be faithful to keep a king on David's throne. All of creation, the, the, the boring progression of days and seasons speaks and proclaims the glory of the faithfulness and the in, eternal endurance of God's word. And then he goes on to give us the third and most important proof. He said, your word, O Lord, verse 89, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Now, the psalmist here is not saying that that the law was given to us and fell off of a chunk of a meteorite and dropped to the to the earth. He's saying that God's law is firmly established in the throne room of God. Why is it firmly established in the throne room of God? Because it is firmly established in God himself. God's word is eternal God's law is eternal. God's promises are eternal because God is eternal and unchangeable. The law stands because God is forever and unchangeably established in the heavens. We oftentimes think that the study of theology is dry and boring and we just need the Bible, but it is theology that reminds us that God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And knowing that gives us, gives you, gives me hope in his promises. God is the same God as he was for the psalmist. He is the same God who 
created Adam and Eve. He's the same God who in eternity past established the patterns for creation. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. God's promises are sure because he is the same God today that he was when he made those promises. And his law stands because he is the same infinite, eternal and unchangeable God who declared his law. How do we as the church answer the world when the world tells us that the church just needs to get with the times? All those things you believe about love, about marriage, about whatever else it is in this world that the, that the world has turned its back on and the world says, you know, if you people would just get with the times, you'd get along a little bit better. Our answer to that is that we worship an unchangeable God who has set his laws in motion and they are in as much effect today as they were when he proclaimed them to his people. God has not changed. God's law has not changed. And even though the world turns its back on God's law and declares to be declares evil to be good, does not change the fact that what God calls good is good and what God calls evil is evil. In Isaiah, Isaiah, God through Isaiah compares humanity to the grass of the field and the flowers of the field. And what happens to grass and flowers? They fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We rest in the promises of salvation because they are made by a God who has not and will not change and is not swayed by the blowing of cultural winds. So the psalmist finds assurance of God's promise in the unchangeable, immutable nature of God himself. And he also finds assurance in the redemption that God has given to him in verses 92 through 95, we see the theme once again of the wicked waiting to afflict the psalmist, to persecute the psalmist. They are seeking to tempt the psalmist away from faithfulness and they will do whatever they can to make his or your life difficult so that you will turn your back on God's word in order to find relief from the persecution. The psalmist answers this awaited persecution with reminders of past and future faithfulness. In, Psalm, in verses 92 and 93, he declares that he had and continues to have a pattern of childlike delight in God's word. And this has led to a preservation of the psalmist's life, even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of affliction. He promises that his childlike delight will continue into the future. And then as, as his delight continues into the future, God will continue to meet the psalmist in his word with his life-giving strength. In verse 94 and 95, we see the psalmist declaring that he has sought out the precepts of God. And in verse 95, he declares that he will ponder or meditate on these statutes. And we know from verses 1 and 2 of this psalm that all these practices will bring God's promised blessing or happiness in his life. And all of these declarations, all of this prayer in this section is rooted in one glorious truth. In the first half of 94, he says, save me for I am yours. We've looked before at this cry that 
that God takes this two word cry, save me or help me in the midst of affliction. And he honors it. He speaks his glory and his spirit into it, giving life. But note the declaration, note the foundation of that cry. I am yours. The psalmist being an Israelite would have known the history of his people. Abraham was called out of a a family. He was called out of a city, a community, a country, and he was told to go to the promised land. He was set apart as God's servant to mediate God's blessings to the nations. As the family of Abraham grew into the nation of Israel, they were set apart, pulled, bought out of Egypt by a grand display of God's power, bought out of slavery and brought to the promised land and set up, set apart to be God's servant, to mediate God's blessings to the nations. God had created all things. He created all of humanity. He pulled a people out of that humanity and he paid a great price throughout the history of that people to make them his. And we may be uncomfortable with saying this, But the psalmist and all of God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament people, the psalmist and all of God's people are God's glorious possession. Paul, multiple times throughout his letters, reminds us that we are either servants to sin, slaves to sin, or we are servants of the Most High God. If you are a servant of the Most High God, Peter told us that you have been bought with a great price. There's not enough gold or silver or cryptocurrency or whatever it is in the world that we place value on. There's not enough of it in this world to redeem one person. And yet God bought us out of slavery through the life, the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A great price has been paid for us and we belong to God. And because we belong to God, we cry out to him to save us in the midst of affliction. It is the redemption of the psalmist. It is your redemption that is the foundation for you crying out to God and saying, save me in the midst of affliction. How many of you have pets? And how many of you would would financially put yourself in trouble for the health and the life of those pets? How much more will God who paid the price of his son for your salvation, for your life, how much more will he extend himself to answer when we cry out, save me? The psalmist says, you have bought me, you have paid for me, you have redeemed me with a great price. Because of that, I know that you will answer your promises even in the midst of my affliction. And that is the same assurance that you and I have. As we read through some of the Psalms that we call Psalms of lament or Psalms of crying out, we are hit oftentimes in these Psalms with a delay. God has promised blessing, but where is it? God, I'm in dire straits, Psalm 22, Psalm 44, Psalm 88, Psalm 35 and 55. Lord, you've promised blessings for your people. 
Where are you? What do we do when the promises of God seem to be in the distance, far away? Well, we remember who God is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're reminded in Revelation 4 and 5 as the angels are hovering around God's throne and all of creation cries out in worship and glory to God that he is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. The author of Hebrews tells us that God is the same yesterday. God is the same today. God is the same forever. And the authors of the Westminster Standards remind us in the Shorter Catechism that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that he is, in his being, in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, and in his truth. The God who made the promises is the God who keeps the promises and he never changes. He never varies. And he answers in his glorious time. And that same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the God who has redeemed you from slavery to sin. And he will hear and he will answer. In Romans chapter 5, Paul, we, we quote, the ending of this section often. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the end of one of Paul's arguments to say, if he died for us, how much more will he spend to save us from the persecutions of this world? And so brothers and sisters, when it seems like God's promises are tarrying, are in danger of not being kept, remember that God is the God who is unchangeable. And God has paid a great price to redeem you. And both of those are your assurance in the midst of doubt. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words of the psalmist, words of promise, words of hope, and words of assurance. Fill us with the strength of these words and help us rest in who you are and rest in what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance for his holy people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.